Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open up our hearts to, uh, to hear what you want to say to us tonight. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're closing in on finishing up uh, the overview of the Bible. where We've got just, uh, I think, six Wednesday nights left, counting this one, if I did my math right, which I probably didn't. Um, but uh, so we're, we're coming into just a home stretch, and there's just beautiful passages of Scripture that we're going to get to look at tonight and really through the rest of the year. And um, Peter is just, it's a phenomenal book. And every time I get into it, I'm reminded again of just how much this book has to offer us. Um, and, you know, before we dive into the book, context is, is everything. And so before you can understand, in, not, not exclusively, but before, it, it helps you understand the book of 1 Peter if you understand the man Peter. Right? Who is the guy who's writing this book? And so, you know, Peter is one of the first disciples of Jesus. He's one of the first ones to actually declare, we believe that you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Uh, when, when Jesus said unpopular things and a lot of his followers left, and he looked at his disciples and he said, do you guys want to leave too? Peter's the one who said, you've got the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Peter's the one who... Uh, knew Jesus probably more intimately than uh, probably anybody except James and John, the other two disciples, during Jesus' ministry on earth. And some people speculate that that might be because they were sort of, uh, you know, the more inner circle and they had closer access because they are more spiritual. Some people speculate it might be because they were actually the least spiritual three of the disciples and they were the ones that Jesus needed to keep the closest eye on. Um, but Peter's also the one who denied Christ, uh, he had a lot of boldness, he had a lot of confidence, he had a lot of confidence in his own ability to be a faithful Christian, and he finds himself, the night of Jesus' crucifixion, a couple people say, hey, weren't you with Jesus? He says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Completely denies that he ever knew the man. And then he gets restored from that. And then he gets filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter gets to be the one who's responsible for bringing the gospel to the Jewish people. And then a few chapters later in the book of Acts, Peter gets to be the one who's responsible for bringing the gospel to the Gentile people. Peter, you know, Jesus said, basically, he's going to give the keys of the kingdom of God to Peter. Peter got to open the door of the gospel to the entire world, Jew and Gentile. So Peter has really a greater awareness of what the gospel means, who Jesus Christ is, how it impacts our lives, than almost anybody else you could pick. Right? I mean, Paul had amazing experiences, you know, all 12 of the disciples. Mary had, you know, would have had great experiences with Jesus. But Peter is, if you need to ask someone to write down scripture on what does it mean to be a Christian, Peter's the guy to go to. And it's not because he's perfect. It's actually because he's not perfect. It's because he understands better than most the fullness of the ability of Christ to save him. And the fullness of the ability of Christ to do something with a life that most people would pass over. And so that's where we're going to be at in 1 Peter. That's what the book is really about. This book, 1 Peter, is all about identity in Christ. 1 Peter is all about what does it mean to be a Christian? And it's, an, it's a critical question for us to ask because, you know, we live in sort of the remnants of what was a Christian nation. And so there's still that holdover where there are people who will say, well, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus, or I'm uh, spiritual, but I'm not religious, or I have faith. And then you'll get these, uh, you know, uh, these people who have this idea 
that there's something called Christianity they should be a part of, but do you know what it is? Right? I remember there was a pastor I was listening to. He said, I was in track supply, and the gal at the checkout had a cross necklace. And so trying to engage conversation, I said, what does that mean? She goes, well, I'm, I'm sort of a Christian. And he goes, cool. I'm like totally a Christian. And, uh, and that's where our culture is at. Our culture is like, there's a lot of people who are like, well, I'm, I'm sort of a Christian. But, but what does that mean? First Peter is all about what does that mean? If you're going to say, I'm a Christian, what does that mean? And then what do you do with it? What do you do with that knowledge? In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And the old things have passed away and the new things have come. If you've believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're a new person in the eyes of God. But sometimes you get a new body and it's like, well, what do you do now? Right? There, there's, a, there's some questions to be asked, just logistically, practically. What does it look like? How should being a Christian impact my life? And Peter's going to give us that here. And it's called First Peter because there's another letter that we have that we'll get to next week called Second Peter. And we wanted to distinguish the two. So tonight, First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, these are regions that he's referencing, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So Peter's going to start off a book about our identity in Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? And he starts off with the Trinity. Peter starts off with God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. And if you're, going to start, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, you do not get to pick which part of God's character you like and which part you don't like. To be a Christian is not to determine what you want God to be. It's to accept who God has revealed himself to be. Right? It's, you don't get to talk about my Jesus or my God would never do this. He's not your God. He does not fit in your pocket. Right? You are his creation. You can talk about my king, my lord, my creator, my maker, my savior, my redeemer. You can talk about a position of a God who is over you, but don't ever talk about God as if he's somehow subject to you, right? So Peter is starting off with, okay, who is God as a Christian? God is the Trinity. God is God the Father, the creator, the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier, the one who cleanses us, the one who draws us to God, Jesus Christ, the one who paid the sacrifice, when you pay the debt of our sins, you don't, it's a package deal, right? You either accept it or you don't. Now notice also the role of God, the work that God does. When we're going to talk about our identity in Christ, the really the first, uh, you know, the, the big chunk of chapter one is all about your identity in Christ, not because of anything you've done, but because of what God has done. What's the first thing we get to see here? from God. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And God picked you. That's what it means to be a Christian. It does not mean you are awesome. It does not mean you are super spiritual or super smart. It means God picked you. God said, I want that one on my team. And that should bring us immense comfort, right? Immense comfort. Before time started, before your body and your soul came together in your mother's womb, God knew that he wanted you. God wanted you for a specific purpose and a specific plan. He picked you. And he's got a plan for your life. 
And he's, and, G, and guess what though? You came out of the womb a sinner. You broke his law. So Jesus Christ paid the price so that when God picks you, it can stick. So that you can still be part of that. The Holy Spirit then sanctifies you. That means he's cleansing you over and over again. Why? Because we keep getting dirty over and over again. Right? So you're chosen, you're saved, and you're sanctified. That's what it means to be a Christian. Verses 3, well, starting in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Praise the Lord, Peter says, that he has caused us to be born again. What does it mean if you're a Christian? If you're, what is your identity in Christ? Your identity is that you've been born again. You are a new person. God has given you a whole new life. It is a second birth. And it's, you're obtaining an inheritance, right? You were born into an earthly family. You had a mother and a father, right? Well, now if you're a Christian, you've been born into God's family. And in your earthly family, you get all the perks and all the baggage that comes with your earthly family. In the family of God, you get all the perks. There is no, there isn't, you're not going to get to heaven and say, yeah, I always knew God was the weird side of the family tree. No. You get an inheritance that's not going to fade away. It's not going to perish. You're protected by the power of God. So when we start talking about what does it mean to be a Christian, everything we're starting with here is all about what? What God has done. Being a Christian is not really about what you bring to the table. It's not a, it really has nothing to do with that. It's about what has God done. And so he's going to carry that idea really all the way down through verse 12. He's going to just keep em emphasizing the gospel. The fact that the gospel is just a Greek word. It means good news. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about good news. What is the good news? That God chose you that he saved you, that he's still cleaning you up, that he is giving you a second birth and a new life. That's good news. That's gospel. That's where your identity in Christ needs to start. In chapter 1, verse 13, he's going to say, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because of the truth of the gospel, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's pretty much a summary for the book. We're going to just kind of, he's going to just go through that. Be prepared for action. There are things we need to be doing. Keep sober in spirit. Be vigilant. We're going to need to pay attention. And fix your hope completely on the grace that's to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's not, Peter's going to explain in the rest of this book the responsibilities that come with the knowledge that God chose us. He's going to say, okay, there are things we should be doing. But that's not our hope. That's not our salvation. Our hope needs to be fixed completely on the grace that's brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that moment when you realize, I'm a sinner and Jesus died to save me and I want his forgiveness in my life, that's the grace of God stepping into your life. You fix your hope on that. That's your starting point. When we talk about what do you do, you know, what's an appropriate thing to do as a Christian? That's where you start. You start with the grace of God. If you start with anything else, your end result is going to be warped dramatically, 
right? You start with the grace of God. Your identity in Christ is going to have to always start with the grace of Jesus Christ. So we're just going to unpack the rest of the book, and we're going to be looking at that, okay? If we're starting with the grace, then how do we prepare our minds for action? How do we stay sober in spirit? So verse uh, 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So your identity in Christ, okay, you're chosen by God. You're saved by Jesus Christ. You're sanctified, or like being perennially cleaned up by the Holy Spirit. You're focused on the grace of God first and foremost. So what do you do now? You be holy. Because you were chosen, saved, sanctified by a holy God. Right? You're, not, you're never going to be holy because of what you do. You're called to be holy because you're already holy. Because God has now made you holy. The only appropriate response is to say, I want to stay in that holiness. I want to walk in that holiness. And so Peter's just saying that. In verse 17, he says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He says, okay, you know, there are a lot of people who talk about, I'm a Christian, I have faith, I, I believe. He says, if you're going to address as father the one who judges, right? When, when we talk about, I believe in God, we're talking about God the Father. And if you're going to reference him and talk about like, yeah, I'm good with the man upstairs. If you're going to say, I, I know God, then Peter says, you conduct yourselves with, with holy fear. God is not a game. He's not a wish list. He's not Santa Claus. He is not this thing whereby we gain our desires. He is a holy God who bought us. And Peter says, he didn't buy you with perishable things. He did not buy you with silver and gold. Those are things he creates, right? If you said, a, you know, if God were to set a monetary value on what it costs to redeem you, it, it, it's really worthless. Because if he sets a value of $10 billion in gold, well, he's God. He can just snap out a few more, right? It says that's no big deal for him. He, he bought us with the one thing that is not created. He bought us with the blood of Jesus Christ, that can't be created, right? This God, understand, Christianity teaches that God died. This is not about the, the hero became God, which is, which is really what most mythologies and most world religions are. This is not the hero becomes God. This is God became the, the, God became the scapegoat, right? God died. So Peter says, hey, if you're going to talk about God, you live with that awareness. We are not playing games here with God. We are taking this seriously because the price God paid for you was not a game. God was not playing games when Jesus suffocated to death on the cross. Right? That wasn't a game for him. And so if you're going to live on earth with an awareness of what God has done, you need to take it seriously. He carries that idea on out to the end of the chapter and then we find ourselves in chapter 2. Therefore... Putting aside all malice and all deceit 
and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he's given us, you know, in Colossians, Paul says, hey, put these things off. So Peter's saying, hey, put these things aside. And then in verse two, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. He says, okay, so we're talking about your identity in Christ. What do you do about it? Desire the pure milk of the word. And at first glance, if you're, if you're reading through the Bible this year, you might read that and think that's a contradiction in something else I read earlier. Because in uh, Hebrews chapter five and in 1 Corinthians three, Paul and the author of Hebrews both reference, you know, you guys shouldn't need milk anymore. It's like we want to give you like serious spiritual meat food and you're still, you know, you're still needing milk like babies. And here Peter says, desire milk. And what's, and it's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. It's a thing that's only true if it's completely true. And so understand, if you're trying to figure out what your identity in Christ is, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you determine that? If you need some basic, like, you know, I just need step one, what do you do? You go to the Word of God. If you're the most educated Christian in the world, you've read every single Christian book ever written, you know, you've listened to every podcast, you've been to every conference, and you need a just brilliant insight. Do you know where you need to go? The Word of God. Because the Word of God in, you know, Paul writes, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine and reproof and for correction and for instruction and in righteousness. So the word of God contains the most basic, simple truths that the human mind can comprehend. There is a God. You're not him. You're a sinner. You need him. He saved you. It also contains some of the most profound truths. Those things right there, really almost any, any four-year-old child can comprehend. On, on at face value. There isn't an adult in the world who can really understand what, that, what those things mean. Those are simultaneously the most simple and complex truths in all of the world. There is a God. Okay, great. Yeah, but what does that mean? Right? And, and if there is a God, what, is it, what does he look like? What does he act like? You can desire the pure milk of the word and say, I, just, well, I need the truth of the word of God. Okay. You can also desire the fullest riches of everything you could ever come to in Christianity, and you're going to find it in the Word. So your identity in Christ gets rooted in the Word of God. In verse 4, uh, Peter says, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then jump down to verse nine. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's, he's given us our identity in Christ. What's your identity in Christ? He says, you're being built up as living stones as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, I've never seen a stone that's alive, so he's asking us to use our imaginations a little bit. But in the Bible, we see types of things, okay? There's, there's references that there's like, there's a temple in heaven where God is worshiped. And so the temple in Jerusalem was a type of that. There's a city of Jerusalem 
here on earth. It's a type of the city of God in heaven. And, and what does that look like? I have no idea. But, you know, as the church, we collectively are a type of the living stones that we are being built into the kingdom of God. Don't know what that looks like. But Peter's saying, you're being built into the plan that God has, okay? If you want to find your identity in Christ, you've got to understand, <clears throat> God has a plan. You're a part of it. You're not the central part. Who's the central part? Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. Everything hinges on him, right? And if you're looking for your identity in Christ, what else do we notice? It's an identity that's found in a group. He says, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession. Being a Christian, having your identity in Christ is not a solo endeavor. It is. It is rooted in a community of believers pursuing the Lord together. Right? That's why, you know, I mean, I say it almost every week, church needs to be a reflection of what's happening in your private life. Right? But you do very, very much need the public side. You need people who are collectively being built up together as living stones. Why? Because if you take one, if you take a brick out of a brick wall, the wall will probably stand okay. The brick serves no function. A brick only has any real value if it's bricked up or bricked in, right? It gains its value, it gains its strength from being tied by mortar to other bricks. So if you want to have an identity in Christ that's going to be steady, it's going to be faithful, it's going to endure, it's going to happen by you interacting with other believers. And that's not just showing up late and cutting out early, that's actually doing fellowship, that's living with, that's being a part of the plan and the kingdom of God with other people. Saying, okay, God has invested the blood of his son for my life. How could I best utilize that gift with other people? That's where our identity is in Christ. Uh, verse 11, chapter 2. And Peter's just going to kind of keep zinging these out. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, because we're being built up as living stones in the kingdom of God. So as aliens and strangers, guess what? This world is not really our final home. So we're, we're just passing through. Abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Because you're passing through, abstain from fleshly lust. It is not the time to be walking in sin, he's saying. Verse um, 13, chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. He says, okay, be in submission to the governing authority over you. And understand Peter's writing this at a time when the governing authority was not friendly to Christians. He's saying you walk in submission to your government. But, verse 16, act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is, again, a little bit of a paradox where, you know, you say, wait a second. He said, submit yourselves to every human institution. And then he said, act like free men. Well, which one is it? Because if I'm submitted to every institution, 
That's not really being free. Well, you know, this is a question that, frankly, Americans haven't ever really had to bother asking, right? And, and in the last few years, as different, we've watched different states issue different rules about how churches can or should or may or may not worship or gather together. And so people have started to try and really have to ask some of these questions. And so there's a little bit of just a balance here. The scripture tells us in multiple places, you know, the government is, is, a, or is given authority by God to punish evildoers. And we owe the government respect because it's an institution that's established by God, even if it's not being conducted by godly men. At the same time, we have a higher kingdom. We have a much higher king. And so his commands come first and foremost before everything else. So he says, you act as free men. If they tell you to do something that the Lord says don't do, don't do it. If they tell you not to do something that the Lord says to do, do it. And now with that, he, qual- he qualifies. He says, you need to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. He does not say you always have to obey the king in every single thing he says. You do have to honor the king. You don't have to like the king or the president. You do have to honor him. You do need to fear the Lord. Have that reverence for God. And so he's given us that. As your identity in Christ... Your identity in Christ should make you a great citizen, but it should make you even more than it makes you a, you know, an identity in Christ for us right here should make us great Hoosiers. We should be great at living in Indiana and, and being a part of the Hoosier government. We should be great American citizens, right? Pay your taxes, don't break the law. There are, there are things we should do because of our identity in Christ. But above all that, we're part of the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven, and that's where our final authority lies. That's where, that's where, we, that's where the, the final call stops, right? That's what it all comes to. So he's just given us that. Uh, verses 18 through 20, he's going to talk about uh, slaves. And in the ancient world, slavery was super common. It was just, there were more slaves than free people in the ancient world. And so he says, uh, hey, if you're a slave and you're a Christian, you know, your master may not be a believer. You've got an opportunity to witness to him by the way you act. And so take advantage of that. And you can say, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I don't have to work for him because he's a jerk. And Peter's saying, no, that's really not how it works. And he says, hey, if you actually get persecuted because you're doing the right thing, there's a reward for you for that. And, you know, thankfully slavery as an institution does not exist in in our country anymore. But... You know, if you're trying to figure out how does this apply, well, just apply it in the context of an employee and an employer. Some of you have unfair employers. Treat them with respect. Work hard. Now, you know, again, he said act as free men. So that's not to say you cannot switch jobs, right? If, if someone's asking you to do something illegal or immoral, no. But if someone's just being obnoxious and you bear it patiently, there's fruit in that. So that's, that's all he's saying for there. Um, skipping to chapter 3, he's going to jump now into a little more just how should your identity in Christ impact your relationship with other people immediately around you. So he's going to jump just marriage real fast, and then he'll uh, just kind of get a little more broad. And again, we talked about this in Ephesians, right? Uh, I'm single. You guys all know that. So this isn't me giving a brilliant marriage lecture. This is just 
we're overviewing Peter, and so we're going to just cover what Peter says. If you don't like it, you can take it up with Peter. I'm trying not to elaborate any more than is necessary. We'll go for it. So, ladies going to go first. I don't know why I put it that way. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. He says, all right, if you're a lady and you're married to a man who's not a believer, what do you do? Well, he says, if you're submissive to him, you have the opportunity to win him to Christ by your conduct. Now, that is not an uh, admonition to stay in an abusive situation. And the Bible gives pretty clear grounds. There's a couple instances where the Bible says, you know, God hates divorce, but sometimes it's an evil world and divorce is the best option out. And so if there's, you know, if there's abuse, if there's uh, adultery, there are, there are points in the Bible where you can look and say, okay, there, is, there are grounds for leaving a relationship. But if you have a husband who's just kind of indifferent, you have an opportunity in the way that you love him to demonstrate the way that God loves him. And so he says, hey, take advantage of that. He says, don't let your adornment be merely external. Don't put all your emphasis on the externals in life. And, uh, you know, he's saying there's nothing wrong with nice externals. God created the female form. He created the male eye to appreciate the female form. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a gift that God gave humanity. But if your adornment is merely external, you've got a problem. Because external uh, appearances can only can only expose what's really there on the inside, right? If you take a diamond to a professional diamond cutter and they put all the facets on it and, and they cut it and shape it and all that, that thing can light up a room. And it's helped by the cuts on the outside. But it does it because it's a diamond, right? If you take a piece of gravel out of one of our driveways to a diamond cutter, a really good one could probably put all those same angles on it. And you'd look at it and say, that is a really cool piece of, of limestone, right? And it would probably catch your attention. But it's not a diamond, right? It's a piece of limestone. And so, you know, it might be interesting. You might save it in a box somewhere. But you're not going to decorate anything with it. You're not going to wear it on your finger, I don't think. Um, so, you know, the external stuff on a stone just reflects the quality of the stone underneath. And so he's saying, hey, you know what? Let the real beauty of your life be a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Let your heart and your love for the Lord be what really shines outward in, in true beauty. And if you think, wow, that's awkward, well, wait till he gets to the men. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Some people worry about word count in in marriage sections of the Bible, like, well, the women got, you know, six verses and the men just got one. As a man, I'd say if the men get this one, they'll be doing okay. So live with your wives in an understanding way. Men do not need to understand women in general. If you're a married man, you need to understand the woman you're married to, Peter's saying. And dwell with her with understanding. 
understand your wife and dwell with that. Give her honor because she's, she's weaker than you. And that's not an insult to women, but there's a, just a, there's a physical reality that women on average are smaller than men. There is an emotional reality that women sometimes are more easily emotionally bruised than men, right? And so if you're a man and you're like, my wife is just, she can't do as many push-ups as I can. She cries more than I do. I don't know what her problem is. Then your problem, the problem is you. You need to dwell with her in understanding and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Remember all those verses in chapter one about being chosen by God and the grace of God and the salvation of God. Those all apply to your wife too. And so she is not, you know, she's not the little missus or the old, old lady. She's your wife. She's God's daughter. And you show her honor as that so that your prayers will not be hindered. That's like the creepiest verse in the Bible. It ought to be anyways, right? If, you, if, if your wife talking to you is just one of those in one ear and out the other things, then you talking to God is going in one ear and out the other to God. God takes uh, the care and the respect of his daughters very seriously. So if you're a husband, there's a responsibility there. To sum up, in verse 8 he says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Okay, so that's our relationship instruction, right? In Christ, our identity in Christ, here's what you do. What do you do? Be harmonious, brotherly, kind-hearted, sympathetic, humble. Great. We got this, right? No, we don't got this. We need the Holy Spirit. So he's going to keep going on. Chapter 4, well, so he kind of wraps up chapter 3. Just carry on that idea, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's saying, look, Jesus died to put an end to sin. And, you know, his fleshly body died and was resurrected to put an end to sin. You've been born again. You've been resurrected in a real sense. So it should be as if sin has died in your life. Uh, verse 3, he says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. However much time, he's saying, that you have spent in your past walking in sin, that's enough, right? From the past to right now, it doesn't matter if that was two years or 12 years or 50 years, however much time you have spent walking in sin, that's enough. You really don't need to do that anymore. It's time to, it's time to move forward. Why? Because you've got an identity in Christ. You are not your own person. You've been reborn. And so whatever you did in the past, God can totally forgive it. And, and you can move forward. But it's not time to keep going back to those things. He's saying it's time to walk forward in holiness. In verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Okay, so the end of all things is near. The end is near, guys. So be of sound judgment. Be sober for the purpose of prayer. Be fervent in your love for one another. Be hospitable. If you want to know how do I live out my identity in Christ, Peter's laying it out for us. 
Uh, as each one has received a special gift, verse 10, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every one of us has been given a gift as part of our identity in Christ. And we're told to use it as good stewards to serve one another. Right? We're, part of, we're, we're living stones. We're being built up into the kingdom of God. We're supposed to interact with one another. We're all given a gift and we're given it to bless others. You are not given a gift to make yourself feel awesome. You're given a gift to serve others. So whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. If you're teaching the word to somebody, you need to teach it with a sense of sobriety because you are telling someone, here's what God is saying. That needs to be serious to you. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. If your gift is to serve other people, which is really what all of our gift is. Jesus talked about, you know, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you become the servant of all. We are all given a gift of the opportunity to serve other people. And so we're called to serve. But he said, what do you do? You serve by the strength which God supplies. There are a lot of, there are, I won't say a lot, but if you, if you live for a while, you'll run into people who serve because they think it's the right thing to do or because they're obligation. And they're serving, but, you know, really, they're serving because nobody, nobody else will do it. And, you know, nobody appreciates what I do anyway. So I've been doing this for 15 years, and nobody ever even said thank you. I didn't even got a thank you card on whatever, you know. You know, there's Pastor Appreciation Month, but there's not Servant Appreciation Month, right? There's all these, you can get these people who serve because it's just like, that's what I don't know. You know, what do you, how do you serve? You serve because God is giving you strength to serve. Because it's a privilege and an opportunity and a blessing. If you don't want to serve because you can't, because you got a bad attitude, then just don't serve. God really doesn't want your bad attitude. And if you say, well, then I would serve, but I can't do it with a good attitude. No, get yourself a good attitude. You tell your feelings what to feel, right? Walk in the strength which God supplies and serve one another. Uh, chapter five, he says, therefore, he's gonna give us a blueprint for a healthy church. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. It's the blueprint for a healthy church is that whoever's in leadership has a heart to shepherd the flock of God. It's not shepherd your own flock. It's not shepherd somebody else's flock, right? In a healthy church, the leadership says, these are God's people, and we want to make sure they are the most well-loved, well-taken-care-of, well-protected, well-equipped people at any church in the world. That's what a healthy church looks like. They're not doing it for, uh, under compulsion. They're not doing it to lord it over other people. They're just proving to be examples in their love for, for the people in their church of how God loves them. And to set an example of Here's what holiness should look like. Here's what walking in the Spirit looks like. Here's what serving others looks like. That's what he says a healthy church should look like. He says, um, the second half of verse 5, all of you. So he kind of gives this little ex exhortation to the elders in the church. And he says, now, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you realize this? If you are proud, God is actively working against you. He is, he is tripping up your plans. If you're humble, he's like, man, you know what? I just want to give that guy a little more grace. 
He's, he's humble. He's, yeah, he messed up, but man, he's, he could use some more grace. Let's just pile it on thick, right? So humble yourself. And he's going to say that in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humility is hard to walk in, but here's the deal. You can never be humiliated in life if you're already humble, right? If you are walking in humility, it's impossible to be humiliated. Humility is when your pride falls. If, if, you're, if you have nothing to be proud of, you're just like, hey, I've got my, my identities in Christ. I've been saved by God, not because I've done anything great. I'm just fixing my hope on the grace that's in Christ. And so you know, when you mess up, it's not like, wow, this great you know, public figure just fell. It's like, no, I stumbled. And, and I'm repenting of that sin. I'm confessing it. I'm moving forward. I'm asking God to forgive me, and I'm asking you to forgive me too. So humble yourself. Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. That's the second time Peter's told us that. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as Peter's wrapping up, what do you do because of your identity in Christ? Well, what's he say? Humble yourself cast your anxiety on the Lord, be sober, be on the alert, resist the devil. Those are things we're called to do. As we're doing those, though, look at what God is doing. The God of all grace. He's called us to eternal glory. He will perfect us. He will confirm us. It means like Satan says, I don't think he's a real Christian. God says, no, I'm confirming it. He's real. He will strengthen us. He will establish us. No wonder he says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Right? Yeah, there's things you're supposed to be doing, but look at what God is doing. Your identity in Christ, God is going to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is a beautiful promise from the Lord. Your identity in Christ is rooted in, at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, your entire identity of Christ, in Christ, is rooted in what God has done. You're chosen. God is doing a work in your life. And so, yes, we're called to live a holy life. We're called to, you know, have understanding, to be humble, to be on the alert, to be sober. All these things. But it's only because of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do. That's what it means. If you are sitting here and that's not the identity in Christ that you have, then you do not have an identity in Christ. You need to find a real identity in Christ. You need to get saved. You need to experience the gospel, right? If you've been trying to cherry pick, well, you know, I don't, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, maybe just like a third or two-thirds. No, no. You take God as he has revealed himself. You walk in the paths that he has called you to, and you accept the work that he is doing in your life because he has started it, and it says, he who began a good work in you, in Philippians, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Right? God is doing a work. That's, that's your identity. Your identity has nothing to do with you. It is all about what God 
has done. So that's First Peter. That's, that's the book of our identity in Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have that identity, that we can know who we are, we can know who we belong to. We can know that you have done the work of saving us, and we thank you for that, God. We pray that we wouldn't take that lightly, that that would not be something that is trivial in our hearts, but that we would really, really let that impact us. God, you called us in your word to holiness, and we want to walk in the holiness that you've invited us to. We want to be part of your plan, part of your kingdom. So have your way with us. Go before us. Guide us and lead us. Help us to desire the pure milk of your word. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.